You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Uh, uh, you know, helping uh, from friends, uh, 
and from church and, uh, you know, the different grants that are available. But actually, once I was in graduate school, I actually paid, paid my own way as a graduate teaching assistant. And how I became a Christian was my mom gave me a Bible when I was about 14, and I just read it through. And uh, it just I just knew it was the Word of God. Mm-hmm. And then uh, one of the radio stations in uh, northern Virginia uh, dealt with apologetics topics. And actually, uh, it was uh, Harold Camping, believe it or not. Of course, wow. he had some wild ideas, but that actually I can thank him for being introduced some, to some creationism. Mm-hmm. You know, honestly, if I start when you talk about geology, the only thing I could think of at the time being, and it's because my wife and I are big fans of the Big Bang Theory, and you have this quote in your book, it's Sheridan Cooper just saying, geology isn't an actual science, over and over. Yes, yes, with a paintball fight. <laughs> yes, uh, I see you remember that episode too. Well, thank you for coming on here. And now let's go to uh, Ben Smith. Ben Smith has been studying and teaching theology and apologetics for 30 years since becoming a Christian while attending Georgia Tech. He is the author of the book Genesis, Science, and the Beginning, available now on Amazon and Kindle. He has a Bachelor of Arts degree in Christian Worldview and apologetics from Luther Rice College and Seminary. He is a Ratio Christi Chapter Director at the University of West Georgia in Carrollton, Georgia. Teaches the projects at Christ Fellowship Church and is a regular speaker at the Atlanta Chapter of Reasons to Believe Ministries, which meets at Johnson's Ferry Baptist Church in Marietta, Georgia. He is president of Discovering the Truth Ministries. So, um, hi Nick, hi, good to be here. Welcome to the show. Now, thank you. Could you tell my audience a little bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing? Yeah, I was uh, I was raised in a Southern Baptist church, uh, and then we moved to New Jersey. Uh, in the mid-70s, and I pretty much wasn't in church for, for about six or seven years. And uh, during that time, I graduated high school and then came back to Georgia Tech uh, to go to school. And I looked forward to starting to go back to church again. Um, during my time at Georgia Tech, I was a little bit wild, and so uh, I devoted my life to following Christ uh, in 1985. And I was at a youth meeting, and a speaker there uh, started talking about evidence for the Bible being true, and uh, it really piqued my interest. And so I asked him uh, for some references, and he referred me to uh, some creationist literature, which I basically began devouring at that time. And for about 10 years, uh, I devoured every young earth creationist literature that I could possibly find. Uh, was a very devout, zealous uh believer in young earth creationism, but somewhere about in the mid-90s, I uh, picked up a book by uh, Hugh Ross and uh, realized that the depth of my science knowledge wasn't what I thought it was and that he had some really good arguments. And so I went into a very long uh, search for the truth uh, on that on that subject. So for about 10 years, I waffled back and forth and then finally came to realize that the science evidence was was really quite strong that the earth and the universe were old. Um, so it made me re-examine the Genesis account. Uh, I was doing an apologetics outline for a class that I was getting ready to teach. And um, in that outline, I was going to go through my view of Genesis, but I, I did a very deep study of every view of Genesis I could possibly find, which basically led to the book that I ended up writing, uh, which was released uh, just recently uh, called Genesis Science in the Beginning. And I uh, went through every view I could find, and then you know, later on the show we'll, we'll go through our views of Genesis. But 
I find that old earth creationists generally had spent most of their time concentrating on science and young earth concentrated a lot on theology. And um, I wanted to, to show that you could also concentrate on theology and interpretation of the Bible, even as an old earth creationist. So that's a little about me and how I came to be where I'm at, but I've been a, uh, interested in teaching apologetics for some 30 years uh been been quite quite enlightening to me and and fun in the process too yeah if anyone's interested also Hugh Ross was actually back on our show on April 5th of 2014 and talking about the topic of Asperger's and apologetics something very near and dear to my heart since he Hugh is actually an Aspie just like my wife and I are so that's a very interesting conversation if anyone's interested in hearing that and uh Ben, I understand also that you and I are both going to be in Atlanta next week. That's correct. Uh, conveniently, the Evangelical Theological Society meeting, uh, annual meeting, is in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. So, and by the and, uh, Philosophical Society and the Society of Biblical Literature. And if anyone's interested in seeing me there, look for Michael Lacona. I'll be nearby. And if they want to see you there, where do they go? I will be at the Solid Rock Lectures table uh, with Ken Wolgamuth, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I'll actually have my book there as well. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'll, I'll be at his table. Okay. Well, Jay, we're going to start with you because we've already agreed the first hour, or first half, I should say, we're going to be talking about science, and then the second half we're going to switch to biblical interpretation. Now, something I found interesting about your book was it really didn't have anything biblical, per se, in there. It was entirely science-focused, and I'm really not used to seeing that when I meet arguments for young earth creationism, but you think the science is pretty firmly on your side. Now, of course, we can't go into every single scientific argument out there, but go ahead and start us with what you think is your major scientific argument, and we'll just see what Ben has to say about it. Oh, Sure. Uh, one thing that might be a little bit unique uh, is where I talk about fossil trees. I do want to give a caveat about uh, what you said about my book in that uh, Prehistory and Earth Models by Melvin Cook did pretty much the same thing years ago mm-hmm. and that he tried to stick with a, a mostly a scientific argument. So I haven't, I'm not the first to do this, but the first in a long time, put it okay. that way. Well, uh, the fossils that we find that are trees some we can count the rings, but due to the where it turns into minerals, it's hard to read. Uh, but the one that has the most number of rings, not how old it is, uh, you know, dated by standard geology, but the one with the most number of rings has 816 rings. That's a lot. And uh, if you want to look at it, all you have to do is search, you know, there's the giant sequoias, the giant redwoods. Yeah. Uh, you can just search uh, sequoia 89 by 68 because that's its size. Right. And it's the first thing that pops up. But the question is, where are the the trees with thousands of rings? And that's what we would expect if the Earth is really millions of years old, you know, from the way I'm looking at it. So a bunch of trees besides the sequoias, you have the redwoods, the bristlecone pines, junipers, even olive trees. That kind of surprised me. I didn't I didn't know that until I researched this a little more deeply. But all of those can have thousands of rings. So the the fossil record doesn't seem to produce them. But again, you know, the standard time frame. Uh, from creation to the flood, say roughly, ushers roughly, roughly correct, uh, is around 1,600 plus years. Well, we wouldn't expect trees to be even older than that. 
and like I said, the oldest one that we find has 816 rings. So it's it's kind of a question of we don't see something, but then it's sort of like, well, why don't we see the transitional forms when we're arguing against evolution? It's sort of a similar thing. But according to the standard dating, the oldest trees, that is forest trees, uh, like you would find in Georgia or Virginia where I grew up, is 385 million years ago. So for 385 million years, we've had trees that had rings, but yet we can't find any that have thousands of rings. Mm-hmm. And so it's, uh, it's, it's the, the most common excuse I would think would be that we, the, the fossil record is lacking. Uh, but an interesting book came out in 1998. It actually dealt with that specific issue. Mm-hmm. It's called uh, The Adequacy of the Fossil Record, and it was published by Wiley, Wiley uh, you know, a standard scientific publisher. Mm-hmm. And they uh, kind of dealt with it from the idea of maybe, uh, say, standard evolution maybe versus punctuated equilibrium. But it does uh, try to document that overall the fossil record is uh, pretty much complete. And, again, you know, from a standard uh, source. So that's essentially my argument about the trees. Well, I'm not someone who's scientifically illiterate. And me, I hear about it, and I think I'm not really sure what I would say to that. But, Ben, I'm sure you've heard this argument before. What do you think? Well, strangely enough, uh, until I had read his book, I don't think I had heard this as an argument for an old earth. Mm-hmm. Um, what we're talking about here, when he says the oldest fossilized tree that we have or the most rings is around 815 years, but there are currently living trees. Um, actually, the website that he gets some of his information from, he's got the bristlecone pine at 4,844 years, uh, has updated it to 5,060 years now um, as the oldest current living tree. But uh, the reason I would say we don't have a lot of fossilized trees in the in the geological record, though, is that long-lived trees are not really in uh, depositional type of environments. In other words, they're in erosional environments in terms of geology. They grow at high elevations. They're on mountains uh, where uh, fossils are not being formed. Uh, Whether we have an accurate uh, or a good representational uh, fossil record over the years, I guess, is debatable. And uh, I'm in agreement that I don't think we're going to find the transitional forms. I don't expect that uh, in the in the record because I I agree I'm not an evolutionist. However, when it comes to what we should find in the record, it's difficult to say we should find trees uh, that are thousands of years old because most trees simply don't survive to that age. Most of them either burn down in normal natural fires caused by lightning or uh, are knocked down by storms because some of the biggest trees, at least in this area where we are, uh, when they get that big, usually about a couple of hundred years old, uh, they fall over uh, and then they rot. And so they would never uh, never be in a, in a circumstance where they would be fossilized. Um, at, at best, this looks like an argument from silence to me. It's just saying that we don't, we don't have record of it, um, but we should. And so I, I don't necessarily think that we should have a record of it. Plus, I also think that if we were to find a fossilized tree that had five or 6,000 rings on it, um, young earth creationists would probably say it, it doesn't cause them a problem somehow or another. I, I actually tend to think that 
even though I agree that occasionally uh, you can get two two rings on a tree in a year, um, the very fact that we have a tree that's over 5,000 years old is is not in agreement with young earth creationist uh, uh, a strict time frame anyway, because it's older than the date of the flood, which they would say is around 4,500 B.C. Mm-hmm. So that that'd be my initial response anyway. Jay, what do you think about that? <clears throat> well, the... Uh the giant red ones in California, I don't know exactly their elevation, uh, but for some of these trees, I think the sequoias, uh, a reference in my book, uh, were a scholar that studied trees uh, because they all uh, are no older than that because they seem to be almost so impervious to disease. They, he suggests, as I mentioned in my book, that uh, there was a great catastrophe. So it almost likes the fact that there is a limitation. They're no older than the 5,000 years uh, I think is uh, points to the global catastrophe that happened uh, a few thousand years ago. Um, well, the fact that the redwood forests are, are there, uh, when they began to grow, when conditions were uh, were just right for them to grow again, is is something that's difficult to say. Um, they are very limited to that particular spot in California for the most part that I'm aware of. And uh, there are dead trees there. They do fall over and die. Um, they're not all the same age. So I would say that probably what we're looking at there is about the limit of how, how long they live. Uh, so that's, the best I can tell you on that, I, I don't think that it points to a global catastrophe at a particular time ago. Yeah, um, Jay, how about you wrap up this point on the trees for now, and then I'm going to bounce it to Ben to give a scientific argument he thinks applies to an older. All right, well, I, I think I'm good on that point. Okay. Now, Ben, what, some people might say, well, what evidence do we have that the Earth is really old. I mean, isn't a lot of it all just conjecture and such? I mean, what, what's your best evidence in your mind for an old earth? Yeah, um, and just so your audience knows too, by the way, uh, Jay and I and, and yourself had agreed to limit our responses to a, a number of our best choices here rather than talk about the, the hundreds of options that we could talk about. Um, I put three of them in my book. Uh, the one that was Probably the first one that I came across that was the most convincing to me was an argument from Hugh Ross, which was about the age of supernova uh, remnants. Mm -hmm. A supernova basically is an exploded star, okay? Uh, After a certain amount of time, which is a long time, uh, billions of years, uh, conditions become right that uh, a star will collapse on itself and explode out in rather dramatic fashion and become one of the brightest spots in the sky. when that happens, it leaves an expanding gas cloud, which is visible. Um, in 1054, the Chinese uh, recorded a supernova in the constellation of Taurus. Uh, and today, when we look in that location where they said it was, we see uh, the remnants of an exploded star called the Crab Nebula. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the Crab Nebula is basically 6,500 light years away. Um and this supposedly occurred a thousand years ago. So uh, we're already beyond uh, the date of creation, according to young earth creationists. 
But the other problem is, is that we can see other supernova remnants across the galaxy and across, uh, in some cases, in other galaxies that, um, well, I mean, we see them across our galaxy, not in other galaxies. Mm -hmm. But uh, we see that they've been expanding a lot longer than uh, uh, is possible. You can basically measure how long it's been measure how long it's been expanding, uh, the rate it is expanding, and go backwards from there and extrapolate it in terms of how long uh, it has been since the star exploded. And in some cases, it's been millions of years uh, that the gas cloud has been expanding, and that seems to be pretty straightforward. And it's observational in terms of measuring the actual uh, a gas cloud exper you know, dispersion rate. So um, you either have a, you either got to make a choice that uh, that God somehow created an expanding gas cloud that looks like an exploded star, or it really was a star that exploded uh, in some cases a, a million or more years ago. So uh, that's one of the best evidences I had no explanation for. If I'm remembering so, my, uh, when I was a young Earth creationist, yeah. if I'm remembering my history correctly, wasn't there one seen around the 1500s or so that really shattered our viewpoint a lot because Aristotle and others had given us a viewpoint that the heavens are just perfect, and then we saw a supernova explode. Okay, there was something wrong here. <laughs> That's correct. I'm not familiar with that story, but uh, I can see where somebody would think that and. And now that we've come to understand how far away those events are, um, you know, th there was a supernova in 1987 that occurred in the Large Magellanic Cloud, which is 160,000 light years away from us. So, again, you've got a situation where it took 160,000 years for the light to reach us, and we're just now seeing uh, a supernova go off. So. Again, we would have to conclude one of two things: either, uh, either God created uh, an illusion, which even young Earth creationists really aren't willing to admit, or uh, or that star really did explode that far away, and it and we're just now seeing it. Well, Jay, I have to say that I've generally found that to be something that sounds pretty convincing, because it sounds like. If we go against that, we're saying that God's created some with the appearance of age, which seems a bit deceptive. So what do you think about it? Well, I want to bring up uh, two issues. Uh, I'm going to talk about the expansion in a second, but I'm sure that Ben's familiar with the argument from the count that uh, Keith Davies is known for, not to be confused with a Paul Davies, of course, famous for the Anthropic Principle. But basically what he did, did is uh, uh, kept track of the different stages so when the star explodes, after a while you have this uh, supernova remnant, like Ben said. And uh, the first stage lasts about uh, 300 years. Uh, in the second stage, you have powerful radio uh, source. And then in the third stage, uh, in some cases, it could last up to 6 million years by the standard dating. And so what uh, Keith Davies did, he broke it down into what an old uh, galaxy would predict and what uh, the galaxies thousands of years old would predict. And for the first stage, we count two in both cases, and uh, theoretically, and uh, uh, we actually see five. And in the second stage, 
uh, for billions of years, you'd expect thousands. And if, if the galaxy is uh, thousands of years old, you'd expect 125. What we've observed is 200. So, again, not an exact match, but uh, the young uh, galaxy version is closer. Now, what's really strange is that for the, the third stage, uh, again, multiple thousands if the galaxy is billions of years old, but none if it's just if the galaxy is just thousands of years old. And so far, uh, there's been no third stage supernova remnants uh, discovered. Well, now, I was, not okay, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just no, I, I no, I, I was going to get to the expansion part of it, but go ahead with what you wanted to say, Nick. Yeah, I was just going to say that. I just did do some checking, and it was a Tycho Brahe's supernova. It was took place in 1572, and looks like a star in Cassiopeia. So for all you history buffs out there, go ahead. Now, what were you going to say about the expansion, Jay? All right. Well, Keith Davies, he's working on his MS in astrophysics, mm -hmm. and so this has been a kind of a focus on his research. And in uh, 2006, uh, Journal of Creation, he talks about the Cygnus Loop. Now, it's in a Cygnus the Swan, that constellation. But what's interesting is at one time it was thought to be 150,000 years old. Uh, now he thinks it might be as young as a 1,700 years. So there's several stages of revision of the uh, data and uh, interpretation. But like Ben said, you've got to consider the distance. All these things have to put into it. But there are two, two key parameters, basically. Uh, the diameter and of the object, and then the density of the interstellar medium. In other words, how dense is space? Like between galaxies, it's considered to be one thing. Uh, between stars, it's considered to be uh, something else. Uh, but uh, what Davies brings out is that the initial estimates were off by a factor of 10. So that, that brought the time scale down. And then the diameter measurement of, of the Cygnus loop, which is a supernova remnant uh, in, our, in our galaxy, the Milky Way, uh, it was revised from 56 parsecs to 25 parsecs. Again, you hear that maybe in uh, Star Wars or Star Trek. doesn't mean a whole lot. Uh, but a uh, one parsec is about 3.26 light years. One light year is about 10 to the 13th kilometers. And uh, to give a more concrete concept, one mile is about 1.6 uh, kilometers. So uh, if, like, uh, if you have a tight string on a violin, it's going to get a different sound than if you have, like, say, a bass string on a guitar. So it's sort of a rough analogy with how space is. Mm -hmm. Well, one paper that was uh, published in the Royal Astronomical Society in 2005 suggested, uh, based on evidence they came up with, uh, reducing the density of the interstellar medium by a thousand times. Well, of course, that has an uh, implication on how you interpret how fast these supernova remnants expand, which of course correlates with the time scale. Okay, well, Ben, that sounds like an interesting reply back. I'm not sure what I'd say to it. What do you have to say? Have you heard it before? Uh, I've not heard arguments about density of the interstellar space being uh, affecting our measurements here. I, I, I think I know what he's talking about when it comes to the, uh, the type one, type two, and type three stars. But I'll come back to that in a minute now. But let me clarify, Jay. Are you are you refer are you saying that the expansion rates that we are recording today are uh, are inaccurate because of the density of the space between us? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, because the formula just has basically three numbers. Of uh, what is the diameter? 
what is the density, and then it has a time parameter. So once you have any two, you can figure out the third parameter. Uh, I, all of the astronomical measurements that, I, that I've seen that in, in a number of Hugh Ross's books talk about the fact that no matter what we look at, uh, particularly when it comes to like uh, the frequency of pulsars and so forth, and uh, and and types of supernovas that we can see uh, show that nothing is different out there in space uh, at long distances. All of the physical properties are the same um, and operating at the same rates. So if you're talking about I don't see where density of what we're looking through is going to cause a problem with our measuring of the rate. Um, if you're just saying it's denser in space out there so so or less dense so that they're expanding faster, um, again, it, there doesn't seem to be a difference in, uh, well, for example, in the case of the, uh, the star that the Chinese recorded, uh, what we're looking at we're looking at something that uh, is expanding at the same rate that the historical date matches. So we're not seeing a difference in those two. Um, so I would say that what we're measuring is the actual expansion rate of those objects. And then, of course, when you factor in how far away they are and how long it took the light to get to us, you, you've still got a serious problem going on here. As for the... Uh, Type 1, Type 2, and Type 3, uh, I think what he's referring to there is that when the universe began in a Big Bang scenario, you've got first-generation stars, uh, which would have uh, come into existence and then burn out and exploded to become a lot of the material that we have available today. Then you've got second-generation and third-generation stars that end up doing the same thing. Um, the problem with trying to measure supernova remnants of say, first-generation stars would be the universe. There are a lot of things that that cause these gas clouds, as they began to expand out into space, uh, they get, as, as they get great distances away from where they originated, uh, they get perturbed by a number of uh, gravitational effects by other stars that are in existence. Uh, time just basically erases uh, the ripples. Uh, that were once there. It'd be like trying to measure, um, a good example would be trying to measure the ripples in a pond uh, of a pebble that was dropped in it hundreds of years ago. It's, they've just merged into all the ripples that are in the pond and you wouldn't be able to see those types of uh, remnants. That's the reason why we don't see the supernova remnants of those first generation stars and only the ones that are more recent. And uh, and there are plenty of them out there that we can see and measure to say that they have been expanding for that long and they are that far away. Uh, that would be my answer to that. And Jay, what do you think? Well, the how they came up with the diameter, it basically got cut in half. Of course, that is related to the distance. So with more accurate measurements, that's, that's how that uh, got changed. And in terms of the uh, reduction of the interstellar uh, medium uh, of the density, that applies to all supernova remnants. So it was a, it was a consideration based on research uh, this author had done 
uh, that it should possibly be reduced by a thousand times. And of course, that has a direct effect on the expansion rate. Okay. But the, well, for example, the, the supernova that occurred uh, at the Crab Nebula is really only 6,500 light years away. So we're really not talking about that far in terms of overall size of the Milky Way galaxy, for example, which is 100,000 light years across. So you're saying that uh, the density of interstellar material between here and just 6,500 light years away, um, it's obvious it's not affecting what's going on because it's measurable. You see what I'm saying, Jay? Uh, yes. Uh, I you guess I, I have to do a little further research on that. I'm just, I'm just saying that I think that could be an answer uh, for most of the supernova remnant expansions. Well, I'd like to step in at this point and try each time to ask each of you what I would consider a hard question for your position. Going to do each of you trying to avoid bias, but Jane, we'll start okay. with you for your position. Say, if this is what the science indicates, why is it that so many people who have studied the science, they haven't come to the view that the Earth or the universe is young? Well, I, I've actually uh, given that some thought. Uh, a number of scholars uh, have written on the sociology of science, and there's some books on it. And uh, uh, science gets so specialized, one of the counterexamples would be the Human Genome Project, which involved a large amount of cooperation. But if I'm trying to develop a new drug, say, for example, to cure cancer, hopefully, well, I'm going to be kind of secretive and, and not have a whole lot of cooperation. Mm -hmm. But actually... We get into these specialties, and uh, many scientists don't try to get a broad perspective. Uh, I sense that in many ways, uh, since you brought up a historical aspect, you're a polymath, and I, I admire that very much. But so few people kind of have that attitude. We have a, a real scholar in our tutoring lab, even though she's not a Ph.D., like she knows everything, and she can tutor in all the subjects. But so few people have that perspective. And as an example, the physicists and the geologists the geologists use slightly different uh, radioactive decay rates. Well, if we've nailed it and we've we put a uh, golden stake, this is what it is, they ought to be able to agree. Okay. Um, ben, what do you think? Well, it was one of the things that made me really think about uh, the state of science uh, in the world when it kind of occurred to me one day that about 99% or 99.7% or of uh, geologists and astronomers would agree that the universe is very old. So mm -hmm. if uh, if that many of them are wrong or deceived somehow, and we're not talking about uh, other sciences like biology or whatever in terms of them thinking the age of the Earth, I'm just talking about 99% of geologists would say that the Earth is old. So... Uh, if that many people believe it, there had to be something that was convincing them they, it, it, because there's a lot of Christians in there. So there's a lot of Christian geologists. So the, the problem can't be uh, just some kind of bias in science. It's got to be involved with the evidence, and the same is true in astronomy. Now, some would say, well, 99% of biologists believe in evolution. I would disagree, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, if you were to ask the question along the lines of how many people believe that God was involved in evolution in some form or fashion, I bet you would get uh, a much larger percentage that would agree that 
that's true. Uh -huh. um, so biology is much more complex. But in terms of geology and astronomy, uh, with that many people believing that the uh, evidence is that strong, it really made me take a, a much closer look at the evidence. Okay. Jay, what do you think about that? <clears throat> well, I, I believe that a worldview, presuppositions, and, and all these things are key. And uh, over time, uh, things have changed. You know, geologists uh, didn't always believe in continental drift. I have a textbook on my bookshelf uh, that they said, well, you know, the evidence seems to be pointing that way. It was published in the 60s. Uh, but there are a few scholars that are the geologists that are somewhat skeptical, so they at least, in a sense, quote unquote, discuss both sides. Obviously, towards the late 60s, it had been pretty much uh, flipped towards plate tectonics, and the evidence uh, pointed that direction. But I'm just saying that I get a better feedback from historians of science and also philosophers of science, and that's why I quoted uh, Alexander Byrd on on the back of my book, where he admits that the uh, young Earth view does not have a solid philosophical standpoint. Okay. Now, Dan, I'd like to ask you what I consider a <clears throat> sort of hard question for you scientifically is that since you're coming from a Christian viewpoint, and Jay was saying that, <clears throat> sorry, that worldviews do matter. Are you asking me the question again yes, now? I'm, I'm asking I'm, okay. you been. Okay. Jay was saying that worldviews matter, what you bring to the table matters and such. A lot of people could be looking and saying, well, then you started saying, and we're going to get into scripture more of the next hour, but you started saying that uh, you really had a hard time reconciling your view with science. And so if for a Christian, are, are you not guilty of letting science interpret reality for you then? I mean, is, has science become supreme? Um, that is a good question. Mm -hmm. And uh, when we were in uh, at the Rosio Christi Symposium, a uh, similar situation arose and the young earth creationists have said for years that old earth creationists are reading science into the Bible. Um, there is a similar situation uh, in terms of people once believing that the sun rotated around the earth, uh, that the earth was the center of the universe, uh, that the earth didn't move, for example. Uh, and what we've come to realize is that scripture needs to be interpreted uh, from a correct perspective. And since the scripture is written from the perspective of the surface of the earth, uh, it gives what's known as a phenomenological perspective of, of the phenomenon that occur around us. So everybody still refers to the sun as rising and setting mm -hmm. when we know that it's the earth, of course, that's orbiting around the sun mm -hmm. uh, and rotating, and that's what's causing our, our view uh, of it. So you could say that even though the Bible's not written as a science book, uh, if you take the perspective of it into account, um, these things can come into perspective. In terms of age, um, in my, we'll get into it next hour, but my studies in Genesis uh, really came to show me that Genesis just doesn't commit us to an age, that it does not, doesn't put us in that position. If it did, then that might be a problem. I, my my initial interpretation of it, I thought that it did, but as I came to understand the interpretation of it a little bit better, I don't believe that it forced us into that position. Uh, and so in some cases, I think science could enlighten our uh, understanding of certain biblical passages. I, I don't see that as too much of a problem. And in fact, it's even possible that uh, some of the ancient interpreters of Scripture 
were committing the same problems. They were reading their own uh, faulty understanding of the cosmos into their interpretation of Scripture. Well, um, Jay, what do you think about that? Well, I, I think that uh, most of uh, history, uh, the uh, young Earth uh, position has been pretty well represented by you know scientists such as Isaac Newton, and that in terms of the early church fathers and so forth. Uh, I think they have largely uh, held to what I would call a traditional creation position, uh, creation in six days, global flood, young earth. And it's interesting that both uh, some, Ro a minority, but some Roman Catholic scholars hold to the young earth, some Russian Orthodox scholars hold to it, and of course some more traditional uh, Jewish uh, scholars uh, would agree with the, you know, the traditional starting date of the Hebrew calendar. Dan, what do you think? Uh, I really can't deny that that, most, that the traditional position over time has mostly been that. However, I would point out that there have been a number of people who've cautioned uh, their interpretation of Genesis and forcing that over the years, like Augustine, for example. Um, and uh, so, again, if, if a lot of those people had been presented with some of the scientific evidence that we have today it makes me wonder whether they would have particular uh, or would have taken a closer look at what the bible says so it it's not so much that we're always interpreting the bible in light of science but but knowledge has always or knowledge of the world around us has always caused us to take a look at the bible through a biased sort of lens if you will so, uh, say again? Yeah, so, do you have a little bit more to say on that? No, I, I would say that that's, that's, that's it. Well, Jay, give us another argument, then, that you find compelling for a young earth. All right. Well, uh, John Sanford uh, is well known for uh, being involved in the development of the gene gun. So if you're anti-GMO, anti you can maybe send him a letter. Uh, but his basic point of his book, entitled uh, Genetic Entropy, uh, I believe the most recent edition is the fourth edition, uh, is that more mutations implies man is gone. Now, how soon that will be, it's, it's hard to say. Uh, but uh, Michael Lynch, uh, in a publication in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in 2010, uh, this is a quote from him, uh, substantial reduction in human fitness can be expected over the next few centuries, unquote. So, it's uh, it's something that's hard to say. Therefore, you know, uh, 2,000 years from there, there won't be humans. I haven't been able to find that. But in terms of the trend, the mutations accumulate, and I'm sure you've heard of stories where, you know, inbreeding uh, can lead to some uh, bad situations. Uh, but in uh, one estimate was that there's a 5% reduction in fitness per uh, generation. And again, how long would that would that take? But just from that number mathematically, in just 45 generations, you'd have less than 10%. So there's a, a book, uh, in my book, I reference uh, uh, a statement uh, that uh, women might have to have 40 kids so that two might survive. Now, we're not at that point yet, but it's like continue these trends uh, where, where, we're, where we're headed. And, of course, other creatures have, you know, all kinds of uh, offspring. Uh, but uh, the the number U, which uh, represents the uh, number of harmful uh, mutations per person, the new ones, that is, is uh, three, uh, according to this uh, estimate that was in uh, uh, genetics that I referenced in my book. But according to John Sanford, that estimate was way too low. 
uh, he suggests the use should be around 30 to 90, which is a lot of bad mutations. So if, if that accumulates over time, over time, over time, and man has been on the earth for a, a long period of time, uh, how is it that we can survive? And there was actually uh, something in the Journal of Theoretical Biology. That was the title of the article. Uh, Why have we not died 100 times over? And uh, that came out in 95. So we have such a heavy load of mutations, uh, we're driving uh, toward extinction, and we don't hardly even know it. And, you know, maybe at some point in time, through God's providence, we may have uh, uh, effective genetic therapies. You know, who knows? But in terms of the past, uh, with all these uh, mutations, how could we uh, kind of live with it? So uh, one suggestion was that humans may last only 100 generations. Now, again, uh, if we took 50 years, which is, you know, kind of maybe a, a, a big estimate for a generation, that would come out to 5,000 years. So... Uh, it's basically admitted that the bad mutation rate in, in hominids uh, is, is pretty high. And then uh, one uh, article in Nature said, uh, quote, it is difficult to explain how human populations have survived, unquote. So the only way to offset it is to have way, you know, everybody has to be Catholic. Everybody has to have tons and tons of kids. Uh, but yet uh, through history and, and through what we know of ancient man, we, we, don't, we don't see that. And in terms of those who might not be familiar with John Sanford, uh, he was the lead author in a paper about genetic load that was presented in 2007 at the International Conference on Computational Science that was published by Springer Verlag. And his book, Genetic Entropy, was endorsed. Again, they might not take the whole kit and caboodle. They might not agree with everything. But just to say that he has some uh, a significant standing, uh, his book was endorsed by Philip Johnson, the father of intelligent design, as well as Michael Behe. Well, Ben, that <coughs> sounds like an interesting argument. I mean, <laughs> does Jay have a point? Is every husband going to have a very happy duty he needs to fulfill now to sustain the human race and every wife living in misery or what? Uh, well, I do not disagree with him that uh, genetic mutations accumulate over a period of time uh, within species, and that will limit the length of time that, say, such species could be around on the Earth. Um, several things that I would point out, though, when it comes to uh, this particular argument. Uh, first of all, we're talking about, in John Sanford's case here, we're talking about humans. So the more complicated the genetic material is, the, the more uh, potential uh, mutations you can have over a period of time, plus when you have low population levels, like uh, in the case of humans, uh, you have a much greater increase of uh, mutations within a population. When you're talking about something like bacteria, for example, um, their genetic material is much simpler. Many more of them survive that are that are normal, uh, that don't have the genetic mutations. John Sanford uh, is a really great guy, by the way. Uh, he came through and spoke to our Ratio Christi group, and he was also part of our Young Earth and Old Earth uh, science track at the symposium just a few weeks ago in Charlotte. Um, in my personal conversations with John, um, and in his uh, relationship with Reasons to Believe, with Fuzz Rana at Reasons to Believe, uh, he was in agreement that that the mutation rates are very difficult to pinpoint to a specified time um, and that the age of mankind is compatible uh, 
with uh, age estimates even uh, on the level of what uh, Reasons to Believe has estimated for the uh, length of time of mankind on the earth. And even if I wanted to grant this particular argument uh, for mankind, this seems like an awfully strange argument to be arguing for a young earth because um, even if I wanted to say, for example, that humans haven't been on the earth for very long and can't stay on the earth for very long, it, it really says nothing about the geologic age of the earth itself. Um, the only other thing I would point out is that cells do have the ability to repair themselves, including uh, make genetic repairs. Uh, so there's some built-in processes here that God knew during the breakdown uh, process that that would keep species alive. Uh, and then there's a verse that's very interesting in Psalm 104, um, right after it's talking about uh, land creatures and sea creatures. In verses, uh, let's see, uh, in verse 27, it says, "They all wait for you to give them their food in due season, and you give to them; they gather it up." Then a little bit further in verse 29, it says, You hide your face and they are dismayed. You take away their spirit, they expire, and, re and they return to dust. You send forth your spirit and they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. So as these things break down, as a progressive creationist like myself, um, I believe God progressively created animals over a period of time as they were able to survive on the earth, as the conditions were right, and... Um, and humans have really advanced life has only been able to survive on the earth for a short amount of time and that's the reason why advanced life has only been here for a short amount of time compared to say the four and a half billion years that the earth has been around so that's that's what i'd say about that jay your response <clears throat> well i i think that the uh, fact this one uh uh, article in the Journal of Theoretical Biology why they asked uh, why have you not why have we not died a hundred times over uh, has a time implication and and basically my argument in my book I, I try to argue from philosophy history biology and geology so from the history uh, if man only goes back so far he's he's been intelligent God gave uh, man uh, you know a rational uh, mind and we're made in the image of God. And so uh, that history goes back, and in some cultures, say, by the connection between the Toltecs and the Mayans, they actually nail down creation itself uh, to a pretty close state uh, to what Genesis recounts. And um, what do you think about that, uh, Jack, Ben? Well, again, we're, if he's going to go with whatever ancient civilization nailed down a, a particular date, we're we're still only talking about, at best, a historical estimate since humans have been here. It tells us nothing about how long the Earth has been here before humans ever arrived. Well, that's a, we got some enough time to give one more argument from the older perspective. So, Ben, what's another scientific argument that made you really thought, okay, I'm, I'm really struggling with why you see things now. What, what was another strong argument that made you think the Earth is over? One of, the, one of the ones uh, that uh, really became very convincing to me had to do with uh, what are known as lake varves. Um, it's a term most people aren't familiar with, but it, a varve is nothing more than a, a sedimentary layer, and they usually come in two forms, or couplets as they're called. Uh, there's a light layer and a darker layer. And uh, varves are formed, and they can be observed forming today in the deep water of 
uh, certain still lakes, in other words, lakes that don't have a lot of uh, water movement going on in them. Uh, and then they can core the bottom of these lakes and see how many layers are down there. It's sort of like uh, looking at layers, tree ring samples, basically. Uh, there's a lake in Japan called Lake Sujitsu, uh, which has over 100,000 of these little varve couplets uh, in terms of layers that go down. And the layers, what they are is they're alternating uh, types of material. Um, one of the layers is formed during the warmer months and it's basically consisting of organic materials like diatoms, uh, pollens, uh, in some cases insect parts and plant parts. And then in the winter months when there's really nothing, uh, when life is not quite as strong going on there in the lake, uh, it forms an inorganic layer mostly of very fine-grained sediments. And these types of sediments, uh, diatom shells and and fine-grained material that's basically blown into the lake, uh, it takes a long time to settle down through the lake uh, and will not settle in fast-moving water. So what you've got is you've got alternating varves or layers at the bottom of the lake, over 100,000 of them, um, that show that, that, again, can't be formed by fast-moving water, that show that the bottom of the lake uh, is at least been accumulating material for somewhere in the neighborhood of 100,000 years. And then the other part that goes along with this is you can coordinate the layers with the amount of carbon-14 uh, decay in each of the layers. So they've been able to use the layers to calibrate carbon-14 dating. And uh, the amount of the ratio of carbon-14 and carbon-12 that you find in the various layers uh, shows the amount of decay that is consistent with the number of layers that goes down through there. So again, what you've got is two methods of dating it, carbon-14 and layering the layer counts uh, that are consistent with one another. And, uh, and you've got 45,000 to 50,000 years worth of decay being recorded there in the sediments. So anybody who would want to come along and say that it's not that old would have to explain how you got that many layers and why the carbon-14 decay is consistent uh, with the layering counts. So that that became pretty – that was uh, very convincing to me that at least that lake bottom is at least 100,000 years old. Well, Jay, what do you think of that? Well, uh, a quick comment on the radiocarbon dating, and then I'll uh, talk about some of these layers. Uh, when we look at the historical uh, things that we can date, maybe an old chair that maybe uh, King Henry VIII used to have or, or something like this, uh, past 400 B.C., uh, radiocarbon has some serious problems. It's not uh, all that accurate. Now, it may have some ballpark figures, so I'll, I'll grant you that. In other words, in, as you go deeper into these uh, supposed varv layers that the radiocarbon dates get older, I don't, I don't have a problem with that in terms of that general sense. Uh, there's the lake in Switzerland, Wallensee, uh, that may have as many as uh, five layers in a year in certain conditions. Uh, now in terms of the layers alternating with the organic, uh, that's something that uh, you know I need to uh, take some further research on. But in terms of just you can get layers, thin layers, in a rapid, uh, fairly rapid time, 
I want to present some examples of that. Uh, a flood in Colorado in 1965 deposited uh, uh, 100 layers in just a matter of hours. Uh, 1960 flood, and I haven't seen this, so I don't know how the organic material uh, is lines out, but in terms of thin layers can happen quickly. A 1960 flood deposited six inches of mud with a number of thin layers. And uh, uh, often the uh, carbon-14 dates that I've seen for some of these uh, situations uh, are sometimes selected, and that's, that's something that uh, I think should be uh, considered. Uh, one famous example is from the channeled scab, scab lands, you know, the famous uh, Lake Missoula flood uh, that was uh, highlighted in a NOVA episode. In fact, it was just called Mega Flood. That's the name of the episode. Uh, but 300-foot uh, thick, uh, the Touche, or Touche beds in Washington, uh, they have uh, a number of uh, thin layers, and that's uh, 300 uh, feet. So, uh, and of course, that was one great catastrophic event. So, in terms of the alternation with the organics, uh, that's something I need to give some further thought. But I think there's plenty of evidence that thin layers in themselves can happen pretty quickly. Okay. <clears throat> ben, you want to wrap this point up here? What's your response to that? Um, well, I would say that Jay's really obscuring the issue here because when you're talking about are there geologic processes that can form uh, thin lamina or thin layers uh, quickly, I would say yes, there are. Uh, but the types of layers that you're talking about that are being formed there, like let's say the Mount St. Helens uh, eruption, you're talking about thin layers of ash and mud that get accumulated. When you're talking about uh, tidal actions, um, when the tide comes in and goes out and comes in and goes out, it can lay down little bitty layers. Um, you know, it, fairly quickly, uh, but we're talking about maybe five, a centimeter of stuff accumulating over a period of a week or so. Um, and the glacial lake that he talks about, you're talking about glacial meltwater uh, that's coming down on a consistent basis. So yeah, you can have multiple layers uh, in a lake in a year with multiple melts. But when we're talking about the, the varve layers at the bottom of a still lake like uh, Lake Baikal, in uh, in Russia, which has over a million layers, or some of the lakes in uh, Michigan that have been studied in Wisconsin, or this particular lake uh, in Japan, none of those quick processes apply, and quick processes simply cannot be applied to them because of the size of the particles uh, that we're talking about. So uh, talking about the fact that a lot of layers can be laid down quickly is apples and oranges compared to what we're talking about in the bottoms of these lakes. Okay, Jay, let's have a, a quick time. You've got a bit more time, and then we're going to move on to the biblical issues. So what do you think about that? Well, uh, sometimes uh, gravity slumping can cause turbidites, and turbidites, of course, are uh, uh, layered uh, formation, and I don't know exactly how the organics fit with that, but sometimes that does happen. I know a case, another case in Switzerland where it was uh, 90 centimeters, almost a meter thick. Okay. Well, I'd like to remind everyone right now, you're listening to the Deeper Wars podcast. Today we've got Jay Hall on defending the young earth position and Ben Smith on defending the old earth position. And if you're listening next week, we're also going to have, kind of have a science-based show. We're going to have a guy on here I think both of these gentlemen could like. We're going to have, for the second time on the show, Jay Warner Wallace is going to come back to the show. He's going to be my guest. We're going to be talking about his book, God's Crime Scene. Is there evidence 
for a creator looking largely at scientific evidence. So that's going to be what's going to be here next week. For now, we're going to get back to the debate, and we're going to spend this hour focusing on the biblical issue. Now, I'm being, I honestly suspect that uh, I don't have a hard day. It's just my suspicion that most <laughs> people do hold to a young earth view of the, the Genesis based on the biblical account because, you know, it just seems so straightforward. Day, evening, morning, 24 hours, everything's created. It just seems to make sense to a lot of people. Now, your position is a bit different. You hold to what's called a prophetic day view. So could you just explain what your view is and why you hold to it? Sure. Um, well, for the longest time, I read Genesis like you're talking about, that it, it represented uh, six normal days and everything was completed in six normal days mm -hmm. and then God took a seventh day of rest and it all proceeded from there. When I started reading uh, Reasons to Believe material, um, he takes it as six literal, well, six literal time periods, six day ages. Um, and I think that the exegetical evidence for that seemed a bit weak and that the evidence was stronger on the young earth side that they were normal days. So as I started studying various other views of Genesis, uh, I came across a view known as the days of divine fiat view. I like to call it the prophetic days view, just simply as an easier way of understanding what's going on here. Uh, the simple question uh, in Genesis would be, were the proclamations that God spoke on each of the six days meant to be understood as being fulfilled on the day that he spoke them? Uh, when God speaks prophecies, when God speaks uh, what's going to happen, it doesn't always happen immediately. And so as I began studying the text, I began realizing that the proclamations are stated in such a way that they they really cannot be fulfilled in six days. Uh, and so my, my view is essentially you can take Genesis literally and historically as real, a real six days of 24 hours on earth that occurred some time ago, but that week is sandwiched between two unspecified periods of time. Uh, there's the beginning before the seven days where God created the heavens and the earth, basically the universe, basically. Uh, and then the time frame after the seven days where he fulfilled the proclamations or prophecies, if you will, uh, that he spoke over the time of the six days. So he set a time frame, uh, set an example for mankind uh, by working for six days and resting on the seventh. And then he went about fulfilling his proclamations after that time. And because there are two unspecified periods of time in there before and after the week of creation uh, or week of proclamation, I should say, um, we really, the Genesis doesn't specify the age of the earth. And so that's, in essence, the my view. Well, um, Jay, I have to say that when Ben sent me his book, I had never heard of this view before. And uh, I was fairly surprised. I saw some things that I thought, yeah, I could see where this is coming from. But had you ever heard this view before? And either way, what's your response to it? Uh, no, I was not familiar with it. I haven't read a lot on Old Earth Perspective except for Arthur Custance. I think he may actually be the only uh, books that I've read that uh, came, came from a more Old Earth Perspective. 
Well, one uh, counter, I think, is the use of the Toledoths in Genesis, uh, and I know there's different views on that, uh, but uh, sometimes it can be translated, this is the history of, and uh, the classic book that kind of defends the view that they're actually at the end was P.J. Wiseman, New Discoveries in Babylonia about Genesis. That was published in 1946. Basically, he discovered the ancient Near East literature and uh, found a certain pattern. Often, records just jump right into the middle of the story and there's, there's no heading. And then, let's say this was uh, recorded on a number of tablets. Each tablet ends with a Toledoth, and then uh, it, it uh, refers to what happened uh, before. So, uh, there at the end. And then uh, the person named in the Toledoth uh, is the person that either wrote that section or that owned the tablet. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, uh, the one is r repeated, uh, Esau. Uh, but normally, uh, most people, uh, at least from the young earth uh, side of it, are usually counted as ten. Mm -hmm. uh, you have heavens and the earth, Adam, Noah, Noah's sons, Shem, Terah, Ishmael, Isaac, Esau, and Jacob. And so you have these uh, ten Toledoths at the end. Uh, and because that unites Genesis and because uh, the stories of Isaac or Jacob or, or, and so forth are, are consecutive history, I think it makes more sense to interpret Genesis 1 as consecutive uh, history. And if you do have $75, you can get a more updated version, which is uh, Clues uh, to Creation in Genesis by the same author and then edited, I'm assuming, by his son, uh, D.J. Wiseman. Well, um Ben, what do you think about what Jay just said in response to it? Um, well, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> the Toledoth idea is is not a problem. Actually, I, I I tend to agree with it. Now, the scholars are are uh, well, they differ in opinion on whether there's ten or eleven Toledoths. I, I'm of the opinion that there's eleven and there's twelve sections of Genesis, which is a more biblical number instead of there being 11. And I would say that all that young earth creationists don't necessarily uh, limit it to 11 sections. Um, I also agree that Genesis 1, which is or verses 1, 1 through 2, 3, or 2, 4a, make up the first Toledoth. And, uh, and I do believe it is a historical account. Uh, but just because it's, but that says nothing about um, gaps of time that may, repre may, may be represented in the account themselves. Um, it, so what he had to say doesn't necessarily deal specifically with my view of Genesis, and I don't, I don't disagree necessarily with the tablet view of Genesis that that Moses may have used source material in putting Genesis together. But the initial account itself, the real question is. Um, did the proclamations occur on the day that uh, that they were said to happen? And the evidence in the text says that that can't be the case. So um, the problem we have in, in Old Earth creationism is that we have nine different views of Genesis, uh, at least nine. Uh, some say ten. I've seen as many as 16 uh, listed. But... Uh, We've got a bunch of different views of Genesis uh, on the old earth side, and the young earth side's got one view. And uh, that, that is our problem right now, is that we're struggling to come up with what we really think Genesis says. Uh, but what he had to say didn't necessarily deal specifically with my view of Genesis. 
Well, let's <coughs> go to some hard questions now, and then I'm going to start with what I consider a hard question for you is that the biblical account says that when God created everything, he created everything very, very good. But if the earth is old, you've got things like dinosaurs dying, death, destruction, predation, all going on in what's supposed to be a good earth. And how can we say this is a good earth if death is going on? Well, that term, very good, is a subjective term. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. um, we would have to let the Bible define for us what very good means. And in this case, the way I like to a answer this question is, I hate by asking a question, but it's, it's a rhetorical question. Um, is it very good for mankind that rats and roaches die? Uh, and I would say yes, because if rats and roaches didn't die, it wouldn't be long before they overtook the earth and ate everything, uh, all of the resources here on the earth. I, so I can, I can also assure you that my wife would say it would be abundantly good for humankind if every <laughs> bug would just die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my, my wife would heartily agree that the only good roach is a dead roach. Right. Uh, right. So... Very good is, is one of those uh, subjective terms in the account. Very good means that the finished creation was the way God intended it to be to accomplish his purposes. And animal death is, is not necessarily very bad, for example. Uh, animal death, I actually believe that uh, in my book I discuss a number of uh, passages that talk about how animal death was actually intended by God in the beginning. For example, uh, God blessed sea creatures to fill the seas, but he only told the birds to multiply on the land, and he didn't, he didn't bless the land animals to uh, fill the land. He only blessed mankind to fill the land. So his intent was that mankind would fill the land and sea creatures would fill the seas, and if mankind accomplished uh, that mandate, even if it had been possible before the fall, uh, if he had accomplished that, then uh, birds and uh, land animals would have been limited. So uh, some of them would have had to have been moved out. In, in essence, it would have led to their death. So it was never God's intention for animal death not to occur on the earth. And that that would be my response to that. Okay, Jay, do you think this is a problem <clears throat> for the older view, and what do you think about what Ben just said? Well, I, I think that is a very uh, key aspect in terms of the tragedies that we have. If you interpret death and other kinds of uh, physical uh, suffering uh, due to the fall, then I think it makes uh, more sense of uh, tragedies like uh, cancer and, and so forth like that. But in terms of animal death, is that is that part of the original plan? Uh, and Ben, you know, I, I really appreciate that more than anything I've read, you've uh, in your book you cover many, many of these uh, objections, and I pre and in your bibliography you you cover a number of creationist works, and I do appreciate that. And so you've actually dealt with these issues, but I want to bring them up. In Isaiah 65, we read, uh, "The wolf and the lamb will graze together, and the lion will eat straw like an ox, an ox, and dust will be the servant's food." They will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. That's out of Isaiah 65. 
And there's a parallel passage, of course, in Isaiah 11. Now, some uh, rats can be fun. Uh, maybe uh, you all had uh, guinea pigs as pets. So it, it does depend on the context. And then uh, Job specifically uh, talked about, say, for like other things like trees, that there's a difference. Because he talked about uh, there's a hope for a tree. When it is cut down, it'll sprout again. But when man dies, he lies prostrate. Man expires. Where is he? In, in Job 14. So uh, how do we uh, relate to all these animals and what would have happened? Well, well, God knew the fall would happen. You know, it talks about the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. But even if you consider the potential uh, uh, kind of a hypothetical scenario of Adam and Eve, it would take quite a while uh, to fill the whole earth. And uh, even with today's current population, it's almost like a, a saying, you know, uh, the whole world could live in Houston, and I, I believe that's probably literally true. So it, it, would, it would take a while to do that. And you could even go with the option uh, that we, uh, you know, had space stations or space traveled, sort of like a C.S. Lewis space trilogy. But I don't think we have to go there because God knew that the, the fall would happen. Now, here's an interesting story about animal death is when uh, Nathan confronted da David. Uh, the ewe lamb, the guy had as a pet, was like a daughter. And, and then uh, the other guy killed it. And we have a sense that that's evil. And so if we think of like uh, uh, dog fights or horse fights like they have in the Philippines where my wife is from, we have a sense that, you know, animal death is just terrible. Mm -hmm. Okay. Ben, what do you think about that? Well, animal death can't be that terrible because God commanded it. But uh, in the case of the lamb, I would just simply say that the reason that it was terrible is because the little girl might have thought it was like a pet, and that's the reason why it might have been bad to, to kill the family pet. Um, in terms of uh, in terms of the way animals are designed, though, even within the young earth creationist literature these days, there's a difference of opinion on whether all death occurred at the fall or whether God allowed uh, the death of, say, uh, invertebrates. Uh, Jonathan Sarfati, for example, in all of his works, says that the death before the fall issue with animals only occurred uh, as a result or only happened to more advanced type of life and that God basically designed certain invertebrates like insects and various forms of life in the ocean uh, to to die or be food for other uh, creatures. It's kind of hard to say, for example, that uh, God didn't design spiders uh, not to eat other insects, uh, along with a whole host of other animals that are designed to eat insects like chameleons and frogs. I mean, what good is a chameleon's long, sticky tongue um, if it was not designed to eat insects? Uh, in terms of Isaiah 65, Isaiah 65 is a prophetic passage. It's, it's also uh, literature that is uh, apocalyptic. And uh, it, always apocalyptic literature always involves high, highly symbolic types of uh, language. There's a whole lot of going on in Isaiah 65 just because God talks about the lion laying down with the lamb and the lion eating straw um, doesn't mean that that's the way it was before uh, the fall. And it also talks about that those things only occur in God's holy mountain, according to those passages. So it could be talking about select spots where that may be the case, where it's representative of total peace. Um, 
So I, I would be hesitant to use in e either Isaiah 11 or 65 to prove a position that, that animals never died uh, prior to the fall. And, um, you know, foreknowledge can kind of work both ways in terms of God knowing that mankind was going to fall. The simple fact of the matter is it looks like God created animals with defense structures, with uh, the the ability to hunt down and kill other things uh, for their food. And I, I see no indication in Scripture that any of that changed uh, as a result of the fall. So uh, my implication would be if it says God created animals and we see animals as predators and prey today, then the conclusion from that is God made them the way we see them today, unless the Bible tells us otherwise. And I've just not seen any convincing evidence the Bible tells us otherwise. Okay. Jay, what do you think about that? Well, I would hold to the usual creationist viewpoint that uh, man and animals originally had a vegetarian diet. And again, it doesn't explicitly state, and therefore, you know, nobody killed anything. It's just that I think that was the ideal that from the beginning to have a vegetarian diet. And a final response from you on this point, Ben. Okay, on the vegetarian, uh, on vegetarianism, I would simply point out that Genesis 1:29 through 30 um, is a permissive statement, not a, uh, not a prohibitive statement. In other words, God is telling Adam and Eve what they can eat in the garden. It's, it's sort of like the, in their innocence, and they would be hungry because that's the way God made them. In their innocence, he's telling them, look, it's okay for you to eat these particular things in the garden. Later, I believe he would have given them further instruction uh, on potentially eating animals, and I don't see a problem with that. Uh, Adam and Eve, um, in, in the story of Cain and Abel, for example, I realize this is after the fall, but in the story of Cain and Abel, you have a very interesting little point that's made there, and that is uh, when Abel brought his uh, sacrifice to the Lord, it included uh, the fat of some of the animals which means that they were slaughtering animals um, immediately in their lifetime there, and they were using all parts of the animals um, for various things. The fat was valuable to the humans, otherwise it wouldn't have been a sacrifice. And uh, fat can be used for cooking, it can be used for uh, burning in the lamps and so forth, but uh, I would think that they would have been told that not only were they making uh, this their clothes out of the animal skins and then using the fat, but they would have also been eating uh, the meat. And since they weren't told they couldn't do it, there's nothing in the Bible that says don't eat meat. It just simply says here, you're permitted to eat this. So I, I just think it's an, an exaggeration of the text to interpret that to mean that it was intended to be vegetarian only when it's nothing more than a permissive statement and does not prohibit them from eating meat. Okay. Well, it's a little bit earlier than I normally do it, but before I get into the next round of questions, I want to remind everyone that you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast, and everything that I do here, it's listener-supported, and it can take a lot to prepare for this show. I mean, a, a lot of what we do here, it's really low budget. It's just me sitting at my computer with a microphone, a a program to record using Audacity and Skype. That's pretty much it for the most part. 
and uh, the work that I really do a lot is reading the books and material that all these people send me beforehand. And this is, I'm doing my own studies because as listeners know, I'm currently working on my master's in New Testament at Johnson University. And for all of us, we could really use your support. So if you want to support us, go to my blog page at deeperwaters.ddns.net. There's a link, Help Support the Work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. And if you go there, you can find a, a donation page and you can go to, and that'll take you to Risen Jesus Ministries. You have gone to the right place. That's the ministry of my father-in-law and his wife, Mike and Debbie Lacona. And when you go there, you can make a donation. And when you email me or Mike or Debbie or even my wife, Ari, and say, Hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. And they'll make sure we get it, and it will be tax deductible. And also, up until the end of December here, the Risen Jesus has a has a matching grant gift that's been given to him because Mike's hope really is he wants to take me on full-time to be on staff at Risen Jesus. They need a certain amount of money to get that. So if you make a donation now to Mike's ministry, whatever you make, it will be doubled until the end of the year. And that gets us closer to me being able to come and work full-time on Mike's ministry. And we're already discussing a lot of the things we're going to do, and Deeper Waters could be partnering then with Risen Jesus. Deeper Waters will still be Deeper Waters, and they have told me, Mike and Debbie have said, we want to make sure, though, if you're going to come on staff, you have to keep doing your blog and you have to keep doing your podcast. And I'm like, oh, gosh, okay, I, I guess I have to. Which, of course, you all should know I speak sarcasm very fluently. Now, you can also support us. Unfortunately, the Amazon store in Vine Books, I didn't do something right, and Amazon decided to chuck the whole thing. So I'm going to have to get that started again. I'll probably do that after EPS, EPS. But you can also support us by going to Amazon and finding books that I've written or co-written, such as A Creed for the Ages, or Defining Inerrancy, or Groundless, or Christian Answers for This Generation's Questions, or God and Natural Disasters. And when you buy any of those books, then we get a small amount of proceeds from what you have. And please consider if you write those book if you buy those books, I mean Writing a good review, I really like reviews, and heck, if you like this podcast, please write a good review of this podcast. And finally, you can go to a jewelry store we have a link to, because I I don't need to tell you this, the women in your life tend to love jewelry. I mean, my wife even has an, uh, an allergic reaction to knickers, so we have to be very careful where we get her, but even she would love to wear jewelry, too. So if you go to our store, there's steps where you can take, you can make a purchase, and let's suppose you buy a necklace for a hundred bucks. You let Lena know who runs the premier store, 25% of that will go to deeper waters. That means you buy a hundred dollar item for your wife, you get good, good brownie points for her to stay out of the doghouse, and you get to donate $25 to deeper waters at the same time. That is a win-win deal. Now, uh, Jay, do you have an organization or a charity you'd like to see people donate to? Well, I'd just like to suggest uh, Billy Graham because when I was a young Christian, his uh, literature, especially his uh, discipleship, discipleship 
literature was uh, very helpful for me. Okay. And Ben, what about you? Uh, I agree with uh, Jay that any number of evangelical or uh, uh, even orphan-type organizations would be good to look at. Um, On my website, which is discoveringthetruthministries.com, there's a number of apologetics ministries uh, listed there that I recommend uh, that that work by uh, by donation. And if if anybody feels so led to support me, I I would not turn it away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I love actually I love uh, uh, Frank Turek's line on that when he says uh, any money you you give goes to support uh, hungry children, and he's talking about his own. Yeah. So. <laughs> Uh, of course, yeah. I might not be doing that as much anymore since I understand the kids are already moved uh-huh. out and such. And you talk about it did take a long time to adjust, which was about 10 minutes. That's how long it took to change all the locks. <laughs> okay, so let's get back into the debate. I'd like to ask a, Jay what I consider a hard question. Ben was talking about how Isaiah 65 is an apocalyptic thing, and it kind of worked very well with what I was thinking would be a good question, that a lot of times some Christians could accuse the younger physician of having a strong literalism that we want to avoid, especially when you have things like the Dake Study Bible, where you decide to interpret everything in a literal sense and end up with a sort of triviism going on. Do, do you think you're being guilty of literalism here? Well, the term that I most often like to use is uh, historical narrative, and I'm, I'm sure you're probably uh, familiar with the work of uh, Stephen Boyd uh, at uh, the Master's Seminary who did a statistical study of the Hebrew verbs and compared it to poetry. So uh, he definitely showed from a statistical angle uh, that it's uh, narrative. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, yes, I mean, uh, we talk about sunrise and sunset even today, and so does the Bible. And so I, I realize that's the sort of thing, and you have to interpret things based on a genre. And, you know, there's umpteen different uh, interpretations of, say, the book of Revelation. So uh, I do agree you have to be uh, careful. Uh, but I think, for me, for Genesis, the early chapters of Genesis, I do believe it reads as pretty much straightforward, this happened, and this happened, and this happened. I think it's, it seems to be pretty uh, a straightforward way to interpret it. Mm-hmm. Okay, Ben, what do you think about that? Uh, I actually agree with Jay on that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I believe that passages of Scripture should be interpreted based on their genre, and I agree that even though Genesis 1 is a unique passage of Scripture in the sense that it is, it is historical narrative and it used those types of verbs, it's also highly structured. Uh, it has a very high structure to uh, the account with a, a series of repeated phrases and uh, parallel. It's not Hebrew poetry parallelism, but there is a parallel type account uh, between days 1 through 3 and 4 through 6, for example. So there's a high structure to Genesis 1, but it is historical narrative, and as such, I agree that it should be uh, interpreted in a literal fashion. Um, there is a, there is a danger always of being too literalistic with certain passages, because uh, if you're too literalistic, then God has wings and is a, an actual rock and things like that. Um, so, but you don't have you don't have that type of symbolism going on in the Genesis passages. So I actually agree that with Jay that it should be taken as as historical narrative. 
Well, normally I'd get a counter response here, but since you two agree, <laughs> there's not much point in doing that kind of thing. <laughs> and I think a bit more, Jacob's like, yep, okay. So, um, today, let's uh, go to you now, then. Uh, Ben's given his position. Why do you think the text should be interpreted to read from a young earth? Well, I believe, uh, of course, there's Exodus uh, uh, 20:11, which uh, uh, puts the creation of everything into, into six days and compares it to our uh, work week and uh, then the Sabbath. Uh, but in terms of how everything's connected, uh, in terms of uh, Genesis 1:1 to Genesis 1:2, uh, uh, Genesis 1:2 starts with a, a wow disjunctive, which indicates here's something else I need to tell you about what I just said. And let's so be, let's be clear at this point. When you say the valve this disjunctive, that's a Hebrew word. We're yes. not saying it something like wow. <laughs> like, yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I've heard it sometimes spelled Vav and I'm no Hebrew scholar, so I don't know what the best way to say it is. But W A W is how I've seen it spelled in most books. Uh so uh I've I've heard that it could be translated as well that's to say or namely and that it that it connects the two. And then in terms in terms of the other actions in Genesis, uh, there's five, uh, there's 50 rather, uh, uh, wow, consecutives, uh, W-A-W, and that's the fourth highest of all of the chapters uh, from Genesis uh, 1 to 20. So basically I'm asking why should we treat uh, Genesis 1 any differently than its regular historical narrative? So if we're reading, reading the account of maybe the spies going into the promised lands and then turning a thumbs down, uh, that they saw the giants in the land and so forth, whatever, whatever it might be, uh, that uh, or uh, say a story about Jacob rather, uh, or a story about uh, uh, Esau and Abraham and Abraham going on his journeys. We take it as well. This happened, then this happened, rather than saying it's some kind of a, a prophetic proclamation. Mm-hmm. Hey, we're up the end. That sounds like an interesting case to make it. Do you, do you find it persuasive, any? Well, there's there's two things going on here and I, I think we need to pursue them separately actually because uh, he brought up Exodus 20:11, and I, I'd like to give my explanation of that okay. uh, which I'll do in just a second but the uh, but the it is Vav by, or Vav uh, is the I believe the pronu- correct pronunciation of it even when it's spelled W-A-W it's a Hebrew letter and it's usually translated as and and there is a a, a Vav just or a Vav just Disjunction at one two and most of it is is involved consecutives. The problem is is uh, even though it's historical narrative type uh, verb structure going on there, the question even among scholars has always been that uh, it's not always in chronological order, and that is the issue. Genesis is not in chronological order, which is something I would have to work out. But uh, if we can come back to that issue in just a second. Uh, on Exodus 20:11, most people are very familiar with it. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Uh, there's really three things that has to be taken into account when, when translating this particular verse. Uh, number one, uh, it does not use the word create. It doesn't say for in six days the Lord created the heavens and the earth. It says for in six days the Lord made which is the Hebrew word of saw, which has a very broad sense in Hebrew. It's most often translated as a form of the verb to do, as in do, did, done, that type of thing. Uh, but it's also 
refers to a whole host of other words, uh, including things like trim your fingernails, for example. So if I were to ask you, where do you get your nails done? You would know what I meant. But if I said, where do you get your nails made? Well, that would mean something completely different, even if we understood it was talking about fingernails. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so what word we use to translate uh, Exodus 20.11 is important. I believe if you, if you study that word out uh, in its entirety, a general definition of the word asah would mean to cause something to happen. It's a uh, it's a causality word. So, for, the, for example, the first time that it's used of human action, God asks Eve after she's taken uh, of the fruit that she wasn't supposed to. She says, what is this that you have done? So it's a causality word. In other words, what have you... What are you responsible for is really what he's asking her. Mm-hmm. Uh, secondly, in the passage, uh, it's Exodus 20:11 is written from a surface perspective of the of the earth, uh, and I'll show you how that. I'll explain that in just a second. And then the word "in" for "in six days." That word "in" is not actually in the Hebrew. So if you take all three of those together, uh, I believe that. The best way to understand Exodus 20:11 is to say, for six days, the Lord caused the human perspective of the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them, which is exactly what I believe He did. Uh, initially, the human perspective of this from the surface of the earth, according to Genesis 1:2, is that everything was dark. So, if you were standing, if you were a hypothetical observer standing on the earth in Genesis 1:2, you wouldn't be able to see anything. Uh, because it was completely dark. So God then did a literal six-day work for six days. The Lord caused, he did a six-day work that caused our human perspective of the heavens and the sea, the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that's in them. But it didn't necessarily, um, it wasn't necessarily fulfilled within that six days. In other words, God did a six-day work that caused it, but it was fulfilled in the time frame afterward. So that would be my explanation of Exodus 20:11. If he wants to respond to that, then then I can explain um, why the account is not necessarily in chronological order. Okay, Jay, how about do you want to respond to that? Uh, sure. Uh, I think that in the context of Exodus 20:11, it clearly uh, refers to the six days of creation, and then in, in Genesis 1, it's clear that on each day what happens, and I think that the things that are described happen on those days. For example. Uh, the sun was made on day four because there's other Hebrew words for say it appeared if that's if that's another view and I know that Ben has uh, talked about this but of course the classic references say in Psalm 33 uh, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth all their host and then it goes for he spoke and it was done he commanded and it stood fast and there's a, a similar expression in a Psalm uh, 148 so I think those uh, indicate that uh, on each day these things happened. And if you want to deal with uh, the order in terms of the days, we could go on and on because there's quite a few. But say versus the uh, standard uh, mainstream dating viewpoint, like the the earth uh, uh, before the sun is what Genesis teaches, uh, light before the sun, seas before dry land, flowers before insects, trees before land animals, etc., etc. Uh, 
So in terms of something being out of sequence, uh, the standard uh, mainstream, uh, you know, the geological time scale, so to speak, uh, contradicts, contradicts, I believe, what Genesis uh, teaches. Okay. What do you think about that, Dean? I agree that the order that Genesis lists them in is not the order that they appeared from the surface perspective of the Earth. On that, I would agree. Um, mm -hmm. the, the problem, though, is, is that if everything was dark from the surface perspective and then God proclaimed everything to come to pass, as long as we understand that it didn't happen on the day that God proclaimed it, the order that it appears in after the week becomes irrelevant in that case, or the order that the text says that God proclaimed it becomes irrelevant in terms of the paleontological order that it appears on the earth. Uh, when it comes to the sun uh, being created on day four, made on day four, uh, day four is specifically one of those passages that, that is actually out of chronological order that I talked about. Um, on in verse 14 it says uh, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens for the following purposes and then in verse 15 it says and it and it was so or and it came to pass in other words the proclamation was fulfilled and then in verse 16 it says God made the light so it's obvious that it's out of chronological order because if it was already so that the lights came to be in the expanse of the heavens, um, then why did God have to make the lights? In other words, if it was in chronological order, it should have read something like, uh, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens, and God made the lights, and it was so. But that's not the way the text reads. The text reads, the proclamation was for the lights to come to be in the expanding clear space of the heavens, which is what I think that phrase means, in the expanse of the heavens, God proclaimed for that to come to be from a perspective of the surface of the earth. And it was so. In other words, that proclamation came to pass over a period of time. And then in logical order, verse 16 says God made the light. The reason for that is, is if, if you were, let's say, an ancient and you're, you didn't really have a science perspective as we do of earth orbiting the sun, and your only perspective of the uh, of the creation was from the surface of the earth and you were told that God made a proclamation for the lights to come to be in the expanse in your expanding view of the heavens as soon as you could see what was causing the lights on the earth the sun moon and stars your next per your next logical question would be well what caused that and uh, that's why verse 16 is out of chronological order it just simply says as a parenthetical note God made the sun, moon, and stars. It's letting the reader know that God originated those things as well that have now become visible from the surface of the earth. Mm. Um, so that would be uh, that'd be my response to that. In terms of other places in the in, in Genesis that I, I go into great depth in my book about uh, each of the places where uh, the text specifically says that a a, a proclamation cannot be fulfilled in 24 hours. Mm -hmm. Okay, Jay, do you have any response to that? Well, I mentioned uh, Psalm 148, but uh, to uh, follow up on that, it lists uh, mountains, angels, the sun, the moon, the stars, the waters above the heavens, and then it says, uh, "Let them 
praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. That's uh, Psalm 148.5. And I think that's what happened on day four. And the other phrase may be a summary statement. Okay. Well, um, Ben, let's go back to you and get started on another track. Ben, uh, what is another reason that you think the passage should refer to an older instead of a younger? Well, to be clear on that, uh, Nick, I actually don't. I don't think the Bible specifies the age of the earth. So it's not that it's not that the Bible is saying that the earth is old. It's saying that it doesn't tell us how old the earth is, and therefore we're free to figure that part out on our own. But I, I, I think Walter Kaiser once said something like, uh, "Does the Bible tell you when it ought to replace it?" Yes, in the beginning. It just doesn't tell you when the <laughs> beginning is. Is that what you're saying? And that, and that would be one of my arguments. It, it, there are two parts to my argument in terms of um, age being allowed in the Bible. There's an unspecified period of time before the seven days, and then there's an unspecified period of time after the seven days. If you, The one you're referring to in the beginning, I think it's pretty clear that Genesis 1, 1, and 2 stand outside of the main narrative of verses 3 through 31. In other words, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth is is telling us the first part of the creation that occurred before the seven days begin. Um, there's a pattern in the text. Each of the days has a proclamation, and God said, in some cases it has two or three proclamations, but there's a proclamation, there's a fulfillment phrase, there's extra information that's given to us, like a parenthetical statement, there's the evening and morning phrase, and then there's a numbered day. Uh, but nowhere in between that phrase and God said and the number day is there anything about God making a proclamation for let there be a heavens and an earth. So we shouldn't just assume that something that lies outside the narrative or outside of that pattern belongs in it. So verses 1 and 2 are actually occurring before the seven days begin. Uh which is also supported by the Hebrew verb structure that uh, that Jay was talking about earlier, because the verb structure of verses 1 and 2 is different than verses 3 through 31. Mm-hmm. So in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth, and, it's, and the beginning refers to a block of time before the seven days, not a specific moment of time. And I give all the evidence in my book about how the te- how the meaning of the word beginning refers to a block of time. Probably the easiest explanation is uh, Jeremiah 28.1, which says, In the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, in the fourth year, in the fifth month, uh, four, almost four and a half years into King Zedekiah's 11-year reign is still considered the beginning of his reign. So the beginning is an unspecified block of time before the seven days, which also lends evidence to the fact that not everything was done in seven days. Uh, the passages that, that Jay's referring to that says God spoke and it came to be, I, I agree that God spoke and it came to be, but it doesn't say how long that took place, how long that was. So um, so anyway, uh, Jay, what do you think about see what Jay says about that. Yeah. Well, uh I would like to uh, refer to the passages that are often tagged uh, Jesus' age verses. I'm sure both of you are aware of them. Uh, but yeah. in Mark 10:6, uh, Jesus says, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. 
And then the second one is Mark uh, 13:19. For those days will be a time of tribulation, such as not occurred since the beginning of the creation, which God created until till now. And then uh, in Luke 11:50 and 51. Uh, Jesus speaks of uh, uh, that, uh, so that, quote, so that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. And I think that the reference to the beginning of creation and the foundation of the world literally means when the universe began. Okay. Well, Ben, that's uh, something to consider. I mean, obviously you don't want to go against what Jesus said, so are you doing that? <laughs> Uh, no, I wouldn't want to go with, against what Jesus said. I just believe that the interpretation of, say, the Mark 10 passages or the uh, or the parallel passage in Matthew uh, are not referring to the beginning of all of creation, but the beginning of creation of mankind, for example. Uh, and to go along with, to support that, uh, Genesis, uh, excuse me, uh, Jesus quotes two passages from Genesis. And uh, one is referring specifically to uh, God made them male and female, which is Genesis 1, 26 or 27. And then the other one is, uh, you know, a man shall leave his father and mother and the two shall become one flesh, which is in Genesis 2. So both of those passages that Jesus is referring to are referring to the beginning of the creation of mankind specifically, uh, not the beginning of creation in general. And besides, if, if we wanted to say that uh, all that happened since the beginning of creation, the beginning of creation would have been day one, not day six. Um, anyway, uh, those passages are referring to more specific, uh, the beginning of a particular world or beginning of a particular generation or the beginning of uh, the creation of mankind, not the beginning of everything. Mm -hmm. Okay, Jay, what do you think about that? Well, uh, I think the beginning of creation being day six, uh, the scripture uses a lot of uh, round numbers, and I think that's the case. So percentage-wise, uh, day six relative to, say, if we go with the usher's number of 4004 B.C., that's, that's pretty close. And I had the privilege to attend a NASCAR race uh, last Saturday, the AAA Texas 500, and I know that there was one kind of a spin-out. He did a 180. Now, I can't remember when it happened, but there were 334 laps. Let's just say that it happened on the fourth lap. I could say, oh, yeah, there was this wild spin-out at the beginning of the race. Well, it didn't literally happen at time zero, zero. It happened at the fourth lap. But relative to 334 laps, it was on the fourth lap. Mm -hmm. And there is another parallel passage that we can read in the book of Acts. Uh, and it says in Acts 3.21, quote, uh, the times of the restoration of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. And uh, Greek is uh, Ionos, however you pronounce that, and it's sometimes translated eternal. But in uh, the New King James, it says since the world began. And so uh, it gi gives the same point as the passage in uh, Luke 11 does. Okay, a final response on this from you, Ben. I would just believe that the uh, the word world there uh, is not referring to um, the entire creation. Uh, the way Genesis, or excuse me, the way the Bible talks about different worlds, like in the the world of Noah's day, for example, um, in the Peter passage, uh, by by referring to the world of Noah's day, it's implying that there were different worlds. Um, at different times. Uh, 
So the world of Peter and the world of Noah are two different things. So in Acts, the, you know, since the world began, would be referring to the world of the beginning of of mankind on the earth. Okay. Uh, well, Jay, let's go back to you. We've only got a few minutes left, but give us another brief argument for why you think the text should be read to show the earth is young. All right. Well, I think the uh, connections are that uh, Adam was made on uh, uh, day six, mm-hmm. and we can go to Genesis 5 and 11 uh, to, to connect up the genealogies, and it's pretty much generally acknowledged that Abraham was alive around uh, 2000 uh, B.C. Mm-hmm. And uh, consider what we read in uh, Daniel, uh, where it talks about uh, 10,000 times 10,000, and then Daniel 7.10, and that winds up to 100 uh, million. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. So if God wanted to use specific numbers of vast ages, I mean, he, he could have done so. And speaking of Daniel, it's an excellent point that time matters. God knows the future. Things happen for a purpose, and you mentioned about natural disasters and such. Uh, like, I have a student that I really, really appreciate, and uh, she came uh, in this direction uh, because of a Hurricane Katrina. I may probably would have never met her. I, I had opportunity to go to New Orleans last year, but I probably would have never met her uh, if that hadn't happened. So oftentimes, uh, God has a great purpose and some sad things that happen. But Daniel specifically predicted when Christ came to the earth, and so time does matter. Okay. Ben, what do you think about that? Uh, well, it, you know, what is time to a, an omnipresent God, I guess, would be my question to it. Uh, length of time it takes to create the earth uh, is irrelevant in my mind in terms of overall time frame. Uh, it's not a waste of time. It's not a waste of energy. Uh, in fact, it's a. It shows a picture of of the eternity, eternal nature of God and the uh, even the omnipotent nature of God better than um, a short time frame from a human perspective. Uh, time matters to God from a human perspective. Yes, I mean he's specific with times and in, in prophecies. Uh, I agree with you on the Daniel prophecy, for example. Um, he does all things according to his, you know, in his time frame and so forth. Um, but in terms of, if, if he told us that he made a proclamation and he didn't tell us how long it took for it to take place, then I don't have a problem with it taking place over a long period of time. Uh, if that's, you know, if he doesn't tell us how long it was, uh, then if we're free to, examine that by our own views, then I think that's a wise thing for God to do, to, to not specify a specific age in the Bible. Uh, at best, the genealogies in Genesis 5 and 11, if there are no gaps in them, which I would argue that there are, but if there aren't, um, at best, that only gives us the beginning of mankind, again, not the uh, geological or astronomical age of the earth. Okay. Jay, what do you think about that? Well, I think it's uh, pretty clear that uh, in terms of the Neanderthals, that we're, we're connected, and uh, that uh, the estimate is the 1% to 4% of our DNA comes from that, and it goes back hundreds of thousands of years. So if humans have to be pushed back that far, uh, and again, you can go to like 23andMe.com, uh, the number 23, and uh, it used to cost 99 Well, I guess they want to make a little more profit. It's $199, $199, that is now, if you want to do that. 
our history professor did it, and he showed me some of the results. It's quite interesting. Uh, for most uh, 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 Eastern Asians, it's about 2.6% 2, 2 of their DNA comes from, uh, comes from uh, Neanderthals. So if we, and, of course, they buried their dead in a ceremonial, ceremonial manner. They had a hyoid blown, so they spoke. Uh, so I think uh, you have to say that Neanderthal is my brother and uh, that Geico is wrong when they have those caveman commercials. So we have to push humanity back hundreds of thousands of years. Okay. Ben, your response? Wrap it up. Uh, more specifically, for information on that, I would really refer to Fuzz Rana's and Hugh Ross's book, Who Was Adam? Um, they go into the fact that, that they believe that Neanderthals are, are pre-human and that they weren't fully human. Uh, how how some of their DNA could have ended up in us, um, there's two possibilities that I can, or three maybe possibilities. Number one, it may just be similar uh, because it has similar function. Uh, number two, if it is actually uh, Neanderthal, it could be from a sinful condition, possibly referring to um, what was going on in terms of happening before the flood. Um, that's another possibility. Uh, but I don't believe that Neanderthals, uh, the archaeological evidence for them doesn't show them to have the same kind of technologies that we do. I don't believe they were fully human. But in terms of the specifics of that, I would really refer to uh, Fuzz Rana's book. Well, gentlemen, it's been an interesting discussion here. And I can't say I'm not surprised that we didn't have anyone suddenly decide to convert to the other side. I don't think any of us was thinking that would happen. But I think we've had a good discussion. I hope both you would agree that everyone can be better informed on this topic now and learn to make their own decisions a lot more. So, um, Jay, do you have a uh, blog or website, a way that people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more about you and what you're doing? Uh, sure. The best place to contact me is youngearthsciencebook.com, youngearthsciencebook.com. Okay. And... Uh, your book is the Yes, Young Earth Science and the Dawn of the New World View, Older Fallacies and the Collapse of Darwinism. That is available on paperback for eight eighty eight on Amazon right now, and it's available on Kindle for three forty five. Now, Ben, do you have a any a, a blog or website where people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more? I don't have a blog, but I plan to start one in the future. But at, my website is discoveringthetruthministries.com. I know that's long, but there just aren't that many short ones available anymore. Uh, discoveringthetruthministries.com, uh, you can contact me there. Um, the uh, My book is, my, my, you're probably going to say, is available on Amazon and Kim, Kindle as well. Yep. Uh, it is more of a theological perspective. Uh, from a scientific perspective, uh, on geology, I would recommend the book uh, The Bible, Rocks, and Time by Davis Young and Ralph Steerley, mm -hmm. and, uh, and then Hugh Ross's book A Matter of Days from the uh, astronomical viewpoint, if you want the science, on those two. Okay. So, your book is available for sixteen ninety nine in paperback and eight ninety nine in Kindle right now on Amazon. Correct. Now, Jay, do you have any final message you'd like to leave with the Deeper Waters audience today? Well, I think this dialogue is important. We need to hear each other out. And, uh, you know, you hear one side, and as it says in Proverbs, you know, it sounds right until you hear the other side, the other viewpoint. Mm -hmm. Ben, any final words from you? I agree with that, and I also appreciate Jay's uh, gentle attitude on it and that not calling me a heretic or anything like that. And I don't think he's an idiot. <laughs> yeah. And, 
yeah, it, it's it's good to know both sides uh, of this and and not to have uh, and, and to exhibit Christ's attitude on it. And let's let's uh, exemplify the fruits of the spirit and have a a discussion about the facts and not not get into a name calling type type of situation. So I I appreciate that Jay has been uh, has been that way. I, I agree with that entirely. In fact, I happen to be, as you all know, an old earther, and I'm married to a young earther, and it's never been a source of division between us. In fact, usually if she's going to ask something about a position, she'll say, okay, what do you think? And I'll tell her what I think, and she'll say, and what would someone from my position be likely to say? And I'll try and give her the best answer that I can. Because I want her to have the best answer that she can and go out and study these kinds of things on her own as well about my pressure. Well, guys, I'd like to thank you all for coming back and hopefully we'll see you back here again sometime. Thanks a lot. Yeah, like thank to, you, Nick. I hope I hope to be back, too. And I'd like to remind everyone that next week we're going to have Jay Warner Wallace return of Cold Case Christianity talk about his book, God's Crime. For now, I'm Nick Peters, and I am signing off.